I cannot read the fiery letters, said Frodo in a quavering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. The letters are Elvish, an ancient mode, the language that of Morgoth, which I will not utter here. This in the common tongue is what is said, close enough. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, in the darkness bind them. There's only two lines of a verse long known in elven lore. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. It is the third Monday of the month, and that can only mean one thing for you dear devoted listeners out there. It is time for the next edition of Film, Literature, and the New World Order. And we have up on the plate for this month, The Lord of the Rings, the, well, trilogy, although it's actually, I suppose, technically one book by J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, this is uh, obviously a mammoth book and one that I'm sure will not need any introduction to any of the listeners out there, if not because they have personally read it or seen the popular movies by uh, Peter Jackson, then at the very least because they have absorbed it through that cultural osmosis by which we find out about all of these types of cultural phenomena. But uh, it, I, ha- I have to confess, before we start in on this uh, conversation today, that in fact my my knowledge of The Lord of the Rings is woefully inadequate, even through that cultural osmosis, because I have a tendency to try to avoid cultural phenomena as much as possible, and I never had any particular interest in reading the book as a uh, youngster. And then when the movies started to come out, they were so, the big Hollywood productions, so I actually stayed away from them purposefully for for a decade or so. And it was not until, uh, I believe, earlier this year or late last year that I ever actually watched the movies. That was my actual introduction to The Lord of the Rings. So I am still very, very new to all of this, but I am, uh, of course, fascinated. It is an absolutely uh, fascinating tale, very complex. So in order to discuss it in a knowledgeable fashion, I actually have a, a, on the line today someone who can do that, someone who has actually <laughs> studied this, this work in more detail in the past. I'm talking about Andrew Hoffman, who is the co-host of Revelations Radio News at revelationsradionews.com. Of course, the link will be in the show notes for this episode. And he, uh, as I understand, does have some experience with The Lord of the Rings. So, Andrew, it's great to have you on the program today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. And and I, I am certainly a, a fan of J.R.R. Tolkien and, uh, and The Lord of the Rings in particular. Um, I don't claim total expert status because if you if you peruse the internet there's people that have actually learned elvish <laughs> i was going to ask do you speak it <laughs> no i i do not speak elvish and in in fact i confess that i often kind of skip through the um the poetry parts and and song parts <laughs> in lord of the rings but but i i am a fan of uh kind of the the message of the work the mythology of the work so we can we can certainly discuss it in that context. Let's do so. And uh, maybe I'm making this up, but I, I think I recall hearing on the Revelations Radio News podcast once that, that, that you took a university course that, that had something to do with this or something along those lines. Am I, I making that up? I did. I, I took an entire class on, um, well, on Tolkien's work as a whole, but but it was mainly focused on Lord of the Rings. Um 
and the it was it was a great class. It was actually one of my favorite professors in college. He was always extremely well prepared and and brought out a lot of interesting material. And he was a huge huge fan of the work. And and obviously that's it's always more uh, more interesting to study something if you're um, if you enjoy it. So he brought out a lot and. Um, I did make the mistake of uh, taking a paper I had written from that class and attempting to get into a uh, postgraduate PhD literature program at a state-run university uh, using a paper I had written on on Lord of the Rings, and that's a big mistake. But that's a a story for a different time. <laughs> well, that is an interesting story and one I would very much like to hear. But but let's start in on, on the work today. As, as I say, I'm sure that um, people will not need the synopsis of the, the, the work itself. Um, I mean, I guess my, my two-minute synopsis would be um, a mystical magical ring makes you invisible, um, can control people, is the ultimate symbol of power in the universe, and is being sought after by the Dark Lord. It ends up in the hands of a lowly hobbit, and he has to travel to Mordor to throw it in the, the volcano at the Temple of Doom or something. Of the <laughs> that's 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 my two-minute synopsis. Obviously, as I say, most people will not really need the introduction to the story itself. But why don't we start in just a little bit about the background details of Tolkien himself and how he came to write this uh, this trilogy that, in fact, was really one book. Yeah, absolutely. And um, he has an interesting life story. Um, he kind of he described his own childhood as uh, containing several tragedies, but not being an unhappy childhood. Um, he was actually born in South Africa. Uh, they left because of, um, or his mother left with him because of health problems he was having as a child. Um, and as as a very young child, he left South Africa and, and never saw his father again. His father died there, um, and then his mother died. I believe around when he was about 12 years old of diabetes. So um, he was he was an orphan at a fairly young age. Um, his mother had converted to Catholicism, even though her family and her husband's family were were both Protestants. Uh, that kind of caused him some economic hardships, but he was always loyal to Catholicism throughout his life. Um, and there was a a priest who, after his mother's death, kind of looked after and made sure that someone was feeding him and taking care of him and, and also um, helped kind of set him on the path towards getting an education, which which he did. Um, he was not a, an amazingly dedicated student, but he was an extremely talented student um, in the areas that you might expect from someone who wrote Lord of the Rings uh, in the study of languages. Um, he was especially interested in, you know, not just the classical languages, but kind of Anglo-Saxon and thing, things of that nature. Um, he ended up at, at one of the Oxford colleges, which um, I was reading through a biography and I didn't know that much about Oxford. It was kind of an interesting college system at that point. Um, you could buy a degree if you were rich. You didn't even have to pass any classes. Um, but of course, if, if you were uh, common folk, you actually had to do some some work to get a degree. So that, that was kind of kind of formed the um, his interest in language when he was still at Oxford, World War One started, 
And he was not uh, in a big hurry to, to join the war, to join the military. Um, he said afterwards that he was, uh, he never believed the war slogans of the war to end all wars. Um, and he stayed at Oxford until he completed his degree. He was pretty much the only able-bodied um, man of military age still there. And then he did join the military and because of his Oxford degree was, uh, you know, was, was a commissioned officer. Um, he was a part of the, one of the most horrific battles of World War I or any war. Um, and the very, <laughs> I guess the history books, it was a, a rousing success when you, uh, it was the invasion of, of Somme. And I'm, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong because I read it more than, than hear it pronounced, but um, 600,000 British soldiers were killed. Um, he was not killed, obviously, but by the end of World War I, uh, among all his childhood and college friends, two were still alive. So it's, um, it's fairly understandable by, why someone with that background uh, would want to write a fantasy s story rather than a let's make it really realistic about current day story. Well, yes, that's an interesting take on the psychology behind it. But uh, as I understand uh, from my layman's perspective, um, the, the the languages of Middle Earth came before the story itself, and the story was a way of fleshing out the languages. That is, um, that's a claim that he made to kind of um, reviewers of the book. He he would say, "Well, it's just really an exercise in philology, and and I needed stories for the for the languages." Depends on which biographer you read, whether they actually buy into that or not. Um, some people say it was just a way of deflecting any criticism <laughs> on the literary merits of the story. But he absolutely, he was, I mean, it's it's kind of hard for someone like myself in, in our current dumbed-down era of education to imagine, to imagine mastering that many different languages and then uh, kind of working backwards from them, which is what he tried to do to develop other languages. Just like Middle Earth is our Earth, it's not a distant planet. It's just an, an earlier age and with, you know, different peoples and, and what have you. But yeah, there there were he started inventing languages before he was even in college and obviously got better at it. And his his research and kind of his um, literary criticism was was very well respected. He was well respected as a scholar before he was um, a published author or or known as an author, uh, at least of, of fiction. So um, he has a famous translation of uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which some people might might have heard of there, and some other work as well. But basically, and his kind of attitude towards a lot of uh, research into older uh, mythological stories and epics and and Norse sagas and and think of things like that was that people kind of missed the forest for the trees and were arguing over trivia and missed kind of the whole attitude and the mythology of it. So I think in a lot of ways he was trying to create he was delving into what it took to create a mythology when he wrote Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit kind of came before it and and is more of just kind of a straightforward children's story where he worked in some elements of his kind of middle earth mythology that he'd already been working on uh that's later contained in the in the 
Silmarillion, which he was working on both way before Lord of the Rings and supposedly way after till the end of his life, although um, he really didn't get much done on it about the last 10 years of his life. He was just kind of telling the publisher, oh yeah, I'm, I'm still working on it, but the, the manuscript itself stayed pretty much the same for about the last 10 years. So. Right. Well, you, you bring up the idea that uh, biographers can take or leave some of his uh, what he said about the work as mm-hmm. uh, perhaps maybe he was uh, trying to deflect criticism and the like. And I think it is important. Um, I'm not qualified in any way to talk about The Lord of the Rings, but if there is anything that my <clears throat> master's degree in Anglo-Irish literature from the Trinity <laughs> College Dublin does qualify me to talk about, it's the fact that we do not have to listen to what authors say. So <laughs> we are mm-hmm. free to interpret them as we wish. And w- one thing that he specifically talked against was the idea of people reading the Lord of the Rings allegorically. And I believe he was responding specifically to suggestions that the One Ring was an allegory for the atom bomb, Mm -hmm. and uh, talking about it in that sort of World War II context, and he was saying, uh, insisting that this was not an allegory for that, and in fact, this was not a strict allegory of any kind. Um, But again, we don't have to listen to what the author says about it. We we are free to interpret the work as we will. So let's let's take a look at some of the the possible allegorical interpretations of this work and some of the things that have been suggested and and perhaps what uh, what we ourselves believe. Of course, I have my own my own idea that the One Ring is self-evidently an allegory of political power, and it is the thing that mm-hmm. once uh, once people touch, even those with good intentions, it things will quickly go uh, go awry. But uh, but what's your take on this? What what uh, allegorical interpretations exist, and what do you subscribe to? Well, I think the the ring is absolutely a symbol. Um, however, I I do believe Tolkien in that case when he says. It's not an allegory. He was very consistent in his criticism of other works and instead of, uh, like, for example, C.S. Lewis's work of allegory um, because he said allegory is kind of a – it's a little game of manipulation by the author where there's only one right answer to everything. Like this equals – you know, A equals B. Uh, a in fantasy story equals B in, in real life or in – you know, religious meaning or what have you. Um, so he, but he said that he could not deny applicability, which he said um, was left up to the freedom of the reader. So there, there is absolutely meaning to his work. It's not haphazard or um, kind of postmodern attempts at meaninglessness to show the meaninglessness of, of the world or anything like that. There's, there's, very well thought out meaning in the way the universe um, of Middle Earth works, and in the you know morality of the characters and the the meaning of their actions and what have you, and the the Ring of Power absolutely is a, a, the key symbol, and it's the first element that he took from um, the Hobbit when he decided to write a sequel, where what started out as a sequel to the Hobbit, and he decided that this ring was more than just a magic ring that to make someone disappear, which is all it was in The Hobbit. And he, kind of working like Tolkien did, gave the ring a backstory back into his mythology. It resulted in him having to rewrite The the Hobbit, or at least the part of The Hobbit where uh, Frodo finds the ring because the first part, um, or the first version didn't really make any sense. It had Gollum giving him the ring willingly uh, once Frodo won the, the riddle game, which of course, uh, given the character of the ring, in Lord of the Rings would never happen. So, and if if you 
you can get a lot out of the Lord of the Rings um, by looking at different characters and how they relate to the ring. Um, you have Frodo and even Bilbo before him, to a large extent, are certainly not power-mad individuals out to dominate over others, uh, which is precisely why they're able to, to resist the power of the ring to a large extent. Um, you know, you've got Boromir, who is who is a man, and of course men uh, in Lord of the Rings are, are very subject to the desire for power and are enslaved by it, according to the story, by, by Sauron. Um, the ring race had nine of the other rings of power that were created. So there's, you know, there's kind of the, the Boromir character, which would be kind of a very typical warrior slash politician type, ambitious type. And then Denethor, his father, who, who had commanded him to... Uh, to bring him the ring. But then there's Boromir's brother, Faramir, who uh, in a, a letter later on in his life, Tolkien said, represented the nearest attitude to his own in Lord of the Rings towards the Ring of Power. And uh, Faramir told Frodo that if the ring were lying by a highway, he would not bother to pick it up. And if his city was in flames, he would not bother to take the ring uh, back and use it. Because he said, you, you cannot use uh, the creation of the, of the Dark Lord uh, for good. It, it will overcome you. And th this is the, the same wisdom seen in Gandalf's response to the ring. Uh, Galadriel, when she has the opportunity to take the ring, they know that they will take the ring with the desire to do good. But that power, um, as the old saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And even with the best of intentions, if they wield the ring they will become basically an evil tyrant. Um, which it would be nice if our modern politicians <laughs> acknowledged that with their political power, they would become evil tyrants. But of course they don't. They think that they can fix everything and make the world a happy place. Exactly right. And I, I think this, I mean, the, the parallels with government are so obvious um, when it comes to this that I, I think the symbolism is, is quite quite effective, uh, quite strong. Yeah. It's a quite powerful mythology. And I, I heard this in a documentary. I don't have any source on this, but uh, so, so correct me if, if you know this not to be the case. But I've heard that, uh, that Tolkien actually said that even if, if, gone, if uh, Sauron hadn't gotten the ring, the, the one ring in the end, if it had ended up, for example, in Gandalf's hands, it still would have been, in fact, it would have been even worse because then it would have been held by someone who, who had a self-righteousness about his, his wielding of that power which, uh, and tried to use that to, to coerce the world into an order that would, you know, even if it was to serve the good, it would still be about coercion fundamentally, which I, I think is a powerful thing to say. I'm not sure if Tolkien said it, but uh, it's certainly... I well, he certainly ex expressed things very similar to that, uh, um, especially when people tried to make a World War II connection and say, like, oh, you know, Sauron is uh, Nazi Germany and, and, you know, the West is, is the allies in World War II and what have you. And his response was that if it was a World War II allegory, the ring would have gone to Gondor. <laughs> and, of course, everything would have been... Uh, destroyed the shire would have been destroyed and everything else would have been destroyed so he had he was a political atheist i guess to borrow the gerald Slente term um he really didn't believe in politicians of any stripe especially you know not socialists not communists but not uh supposed democratic leaders either 
Well, that, that's right. And I, and I hope people aren't thinking that, that we, or at least myself, I'm reading my own anarchistic tendencies into <laughs> this. I think, I think we can take this directly from the work. So I, I have taken it upon myself to begin reading this book in preparation for this episode. I'm only about 100 pages in, so really just a, a morsel of a taste of the work to get an idea of it. But I was, I was fascinated to read in the prologue in that section uh, of the ordering of the Shire, where he writes about the Shire and its lack of government, where he writes specifically, mm-hmm. quote, the Shire at this time had hardly any government. Families, for the most part, managed their own affairs. Growing food and eating it occupied most of their time. In other matters, they were, as a rule, generous and not greedy, but contented and moderate, so that estates, farms, workshops, and small trades tended to remain unchanged for generations. And he goes on to talk about how there had been no king for nearly a thousand years, uh, for they attributed to the king of old all their essential laws. And uh, and the only uh, real official in the Shire at this date was the mayor of Mike, M- Mitchell Delving, or of the Shire, who, who was elected every seven years. And really, his only duty was to preside at banquets. And they also yeah. had a postmaster <laughs> and a first sheriff. But other than that, they didn't really have any government structure of any sort. So it's important to understand that I think he was encoding this into the work itself uh, in many ways. Uh, oh, ab- absolutely. It does not take... Um an obscure reading to to figure that out. In fact, I wrote a essay on Tolkien's anarchy and you know the the symbol of of the Ring of Power and or the Ring as political power and Lord of the Rings before I was an anarchist. You know before I uh, found out about nine eleven and and got involved in in this whole alternative news world that we're in. It was it was clear to me just from reading what he had said, um, and he even claimed to be. An anarchist, he he wrote a letter to his son. He said, "The older I get, the more of an um, more my political leanings lead toward anarchy." He said, uh, "The philosophical kind, not the rock throwing kind." <laughs> <laughs> so that is, he was he grew more and more distrustful of political power, and people say, "Well, the Lord of the Rings is very sympathetic to monarchy and things like that," and I think there is a certain amount of truth to it. Um, but the characters who are good that are also powerful don't really want the power. You got Aragorn, who instead of you know claiming the throne ambitiously, um, wanders around in the wilderness protecting those who who can't protect themselves uh, without being thanked, without anyone knowing who he really is. He's basically kind of a a, a servant uh, to the the more innocent people like, like hobbits out there. So, you know, the, and I guess the, (laughs) I might be putting words in his mouth, but the the attitude I get from his work is that you would put monarchy as one of the least bad methods of political power, because at least no one is striving after it. They're just born into it. (laughs) So at least you have some chance of someone not enjoying lording themselves over others, uh, where with politicians, 100% 100% of them want to do it because they have to make a, a choice to get involved in it. So um, you can make that argument, but but yes, overall it's a very pro-anarchy, pro-self-rule. Obviously, you're, you're not quite there yet, but uh, one thing that got left out of the movies was the scouring of the Shire, which is one of the last chapters of the book. And um, the hobbits return home. You know, the ring has been destroyed, Middle-earth is saved, Aragorn is on the throne. And they come home, and the Shire is completely taken over by ruffians, and there's long lists of rules, and everyone's forced into being a sheriff and a spy on each other. And there's a, 
uh, what do they call it, um, gatherers and sharers who do a lot more gathering than sharing. So it's kind of a, uh, could be very applicable to kind of a, a communist or socialist system. And the, the hobbits come back and, and because of what they've been through, they're not about to, to let this happen. And they rile up the other hobbits and they kick out the, the men ruling over them and Saruman is there as well. So I don't want to totally ruin the end of the book for you. You but already have. I already have. Oh, but, unbelievable. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and I totally understand where Peter Jackson was coming from. And lots of literary critics hate the ending of Lord of the Rings, hate the Scouring of the Shire. And Peter Jackson, you know, if you're making an epic movie, it's really not the most epic part. So it would be, <laughs> first of all, the movie would have to be even longer. And then you would have to kind of have a anticlimactic end to it. But philosophically, as far as uh, showing Tolkien's political leanings, the, uh, the Scouring of the Shire is a very, very important chapter. And, and he, um, he admitted that, or he talked about that when people criticize that part of it. So. Well, uh, maybe Peter Jackson could make another movie out of it, or hey, maybe go. another trilogy, <laughs> like with The Hobbit, um, <laughs> which I've also started watching in preparation for this episode, but I yep. haven't uh, finished it yet. So so no no spoilers on that for me. Okay, no spoilers on that one. <laughs> all right, but um, but I think all of those points are, are extremely valid. And uh, and another thing that I wanted to uh, to bring into this to, to slightly complicate this, but uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's literary executive executor, his uh, third-born son, uh, Christopher Tolkien, mm -hmm. was mentioning in a uh, documentary that I was watching um, earlier today, uh, he was mentioning how um, machinery is is uh, something that's important in uh, not just a, a literal sense in, in mm -hmm. these works, not just as machines as we think of them, but in a, in a sort of symbolic sense as to anything that that uh, represents mankind's attempts to bring their desires into the world through through some sort of apparatus of coercion, which is a pretty broad reading. But in that reading, even the ring itself becomes a type of machine in in that sense, a, a way of trying to manifest our our will in the world. And it it's uh, something that uh, Christopher was making the point is is deeply embedded in the, in JRR's imagination as something inherently wrong if not evil something something bad something to be resisted and interestingly enough I, I didn't know this but biographically I guess J.R.R. Tolkien himself was quite uh, averse to a lot of different types of technologies the uh, the railroad and things like this he saw it as as quite a tragedy and a, and a sort of scar on the environment and uh, and I, I can see that certainly reflected in the Shire in the way that that's represented as kind of a a uh, rustic, uh, humble, old-style uh, British uh, village, I would say, that, that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Um, can, can you speak to that idea of, of the war being somewhat against the, the war of industrialization and mechanization? Absolutely, yeah. And his childhood was spent um, in kind of a rustic English town, or at least a good part of his childhood, very much like the Shire. And when he came back from World War One, it had totally changed. Uh, the town of Oxford had totally uh, was totally changed in the years following the war as well. So it's very, very clear in Lord of the Rings that that trees come off very well, and machines and industrialization and smokestacks and industry come off very poorly. And that was certainly reflected in his his personal life. His favorite place to go walking, and he would go on very long walks throughout his life, but towards the end of his life was to, you know, kind of a botanical garden type place to see the different trees and, and things like that. And he, he would go there almost every day. So 
that's kind of been grasped onto by the environmentalist side of things. But <laughs> uh, Tolkien would be very averse to the um, environmentalist method of, oh, let's cry, let's be a special interest group to government and expect government to regulate everything and make it all better. And um, But he did believe that, or certainly seemed to believe from his works, that industrialization made everything on a mass scale and leads to political corruption and things kind of automatically. It's hard to have massive industry and the type of shire or kind of this. Um, and I, I think it's people say, oh, it's a utopia. It's a totally bogus world. And, and I think that's kind of unfair. I mean, people there aren't perfect by any means. There were problems, but they were very localized problems. And uh, the people there were focused on growing food, feeding their families, spending time with their friends, smoking, drinking, um, all things that, that Tolkien enjoyed doing. Um, and he that he kind of, I guess, respected in, in other people. Um, during the war, for example, he was a lot more impressed with the average kind of country bumpkin soldier and their, their sense of duty and, and their willingness to sacrifice than he was with the, the generals of the military or the politicians, that's for sure. Well, Andrew, I'm just looking at the clock and uh, I can't believe it's already been almost half an hour. So I guess we should start uh, bringing this conversation to a close, although there's so, so much more to talk about. But something that I definitely did want to talk about specifically before uh, before we wrap things up is the idea that um, that this is another one of those works that presents us with something of a, a template for uh, for resistance or for solving some of these problems, mm -hmm. but I think a fundamentally um, incorrect template and one that um, that is d deeply embedded in our psychology, and I understand why it appeals, and I understand why it continues to crop up in literature, but um, I think it's, it's it, we have to very much uh, consciously uh, denote it as being just a literary trope rather than something we should really follow. And I'm talking about the idea that um, that there is some sort of mystical object or whatever that if we can only destroy that, if we can only get rid of that one thing, if we can only do the big one quest that will ultimately, you know, end up with the ring falling into the, the lava or whatever, <laughs> whatever the case may be, if we can just do that, then everything will be solved. The, the landscape will magically change. And, and I, I'm interested in how this, this is visually represented in a lot of movies. So, of course, I'm thinking of the, uh, the movie version of, uh, of the Lord of the Rings trilogy by Peter Jackson. And uh, and the sort of visual transformation of the landscape after the destruction of uh, of, uh, of Saruman, uh, uh, not Saruman, Sauron, and uh, and uh, I've seen this repeated in a lot of different stories. I mean, I, I think of the end of Tron as well, when the entire landscape turns from red to blue when, once they <laughs> defeat the the main computer. Uh, that kind of that kind of idea that this is something that we have to be striving for, I think, is fundamentally the wrong idea because, again, I think in in some ways that replicates the entire thing that that we're supposed to be resisting when it comes to the ring which is the idea that there's there's one one solution one big quest one thing that we all have to rally around and and go and do that thing and it, then everything will be better and i think that's uh, very misleading i don't blame tolkien for that specifically because i'm not sure he was predictively programming people with that i don't think he was inserting that type of idea you know deliberately but i think it's something that we uh, we tend to absorb when we read these types of books i'm wondering your, your take on that and uh and whether this does prevent a sort of false template for the the heroic quest well i think you're 
your beef is more with Peter Jackson than with Tolkien. Um, because, again, with the scouring of the Shire, they go home and their entire society is in ruins and can only be um, kind of rebuilt very slowly. And it's, uh, you know, one of them says, oh, I'm, I'm glad that's over. And Sam says, well, we can't call it over when there's so much work left to do. So there is, uh, you know, the the destruction of the ring sets many things straight, but it doesn't it doesn't uh, restore the Shire on its own. That that's up to the hobbits when they when they go back to it um, and the people working with them. And I think that could be one of the reasons for you know why Tolkien said that was an important part of the story um, is so that it's not this kind of epic um one amazing feat you know makes everything better however one thing about that one amazing feat is it was a something of um i guess destroying something bad this this symbol of political power and what have you and kind of gives everything a chance to breathe again and a chance to grow and operate on its own and people to make their own decisions and not to be slaves to the the Dark Lord and thing, um, things that were represented by orcs and what have you. But, you know, I, I think there, I, well, I certainly agree with you that there is no one silver bullet solution, you know, sitting around, oh, come on, James, tell us how to solve all this stuff, you know. Uh, isn't there one magic lawsuit we can file and the government will retreat and say oh you fooled us and and everything what you can all be free now you win it, this time gadget yeah <laughs> um you know we, we never thought of that you refused to take a social security number and now everything's better we will just leave you alone you know not that there isn't some truth to that because when you build a whole fraudulent system based on lies you know pointing out the lies is valuable um It just doesn't actually fix anything as far as, you know, there's there's no actual rules to the game that uh, people in power play by. It's just right. they have exactly. power and exactly. power it's and a system don't. of control. And I think if yeah. we don't understand that and confront it in a systematic way, then then yes, there's no individual magic bullet that's going to make everything better. Well, I, I, I take your 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 uh, your admonition to heart. I, I'm sure that my beef really is with Peter Jackson rather than Tolkien on, on a number <laughs> of levels, I'm sure. And I, I do hope to uh, to actually complete this book at some point, uh, assuming I can get the time to actually read. And I, I have quite enjoyed what I've read so far. And I, I said that we should be wrapping things up, but another thing that I really wanted to, to at least mention is the uh, the interesting timing of uh, the, the Two Towers, the movie version, coming out, of mm. course, just shortly after the Twin Towers came down, which is interesting in, in itself. And I'm sure that, uh, that that is obviously not something that Tolkien could have in any way envisaged. But, <laughs> but it is um, interesting that a uh, Apparently, there is some ambiguity as to what the two towers even refers to. Um, which two towers is he is referring to in that? Uh, can, do you know anything about that that ambiguity and what uh, what what is the actual title supposed to be referring to there? Well, the title was added by the publisher because I mean the publisher is the one that split it up into three books. Um, it was just one giant book, so you know you'd you'd have to ask the publisher for. For sure, but I, I'm pretty sure it just means the Tower of Mordor and the Tower of Isengard. 
so the the two kind of evil evil powers that that are uh, central to that part of the story. Well, in defense of of what I said there, I, I I was earlier watching something where they were talking about how it could potentially refer to to Miris Tirith Mirin Tirith and something else and something else and something else and I'm not sure, but at any rate, I'll, I'll... yeah. I mean, you, you can make the argument for that it's Gondor. You know, one of them's Gondor and the choice between the two, which I would be more likely to go for if it was Tolkien that that chose the title instead of the publisher. But. Well, my understanding was that he agreed with the publisher on the title of The Fellowship of the Ring and, I believe, The Two Towers, but he strongly disagreed with The Return of the King. With The Return of the King. Hmm. Because That's... apparently that gives away the ending. So <laughs> he thought it would be better to have a, uh, a more ambiguous title, and I believe he wanted to call it War of the Rings. Okay. I, I did not... I did not know that, but that certainly sounds correct there. So that's, um, yeah, I, I think the the story of of how it got published is kind of interesting. The publishers, it was still a, a family publishing business, and I'm I'm blanking on the son's name, but he read The Hobbit when I believe when he was eight years old. Stanley Unwin, I think, is his name, and um, his review of The Hobbit was that it was you know a very good and entertaining book for children five to nine years old or something <laughs> something in that age range, which now I don't know if you can find a nine-year-old that can read it. But uh, when he read Lord of the Rings, he wrote to his father because his father was away in a different country um, in India or somewhere, and he said, uh, we finally have the new book from, from Tolkien. It will probably lose about uh, 3,000 pounds it's a work of staggering genius. It will probably lose about 3,000 pounds. And um, his father wrote back and said, well, if it's a work of genius, go ahead and publish it, even if we're going to lose money. So he published it, but w- with the proviso that Tolkien would get no money up front, but he would get half of all the publishing, all the royalties once the expenses were taken care of, which, of course, is a worked out rather well for, the, for Tolkien and his estate. Absolutely. Well, a good gig if you can get it, I suppose. Well, a very, very interesting. And as I say, there's so much to talk about, and uh, obviously we've only scratched the surface. But is there anything specifically you wanted to uh, to put in before we wrap things up here? Well, uh, one thing to keep an eye out for in your in your reading of the, of the book is uh, the character of Tom Bombadil, because um, you'll see that he actually is the other character to put on the ring, and yet. The ring, uh, he does not disappear when wearing the ring. Uh, in fact, the ring disappears in his hand. So make of that what you will. And who is Tom Bombadil is a topic long discussed on internet talking forums. So may- maybe you can figure it out, James. Mm, okay. Well, that sounds like a challenge and one that I will probably not be up to. But at any rate, <laughs> I will attempt it. Okay, fascinating stuff. So I think we'll leave things there. But before we let you go, um, Andrew, we should, of course, mention not only Revelations Radio News, but of course, your your uh, own work, including the book that you've written, The New World Order and the Eugenics Wars, A Christian Perspective, which I, I'm going to confess I haven't read, um, but I would like to at some point, And I'm sure we can well, have you on the program to talk about it more in the future. But tell people a little bit about that work. You can wholeheartedly endorse it without without pang of conscience, right, James? Because okay, you you know Stamp of no of approval. You know of no flaws in that book whatsoever. So. <laughs> that's that's very true. That's very true. There you go. Um, no, it's it's a book that I wrote um, 
during my time teaching English in Korea. So that's um, kind of our, when I was first listening to the Corbett Report, actually. I was over there and um, teaching English in Korea, and I was a, a former English major, philosophy minor, teaching English in a foreign country, so I I was drawn to the Corbett Report for, for that reason, among many others, and um, the the book was basically my attempt um, to kind of give my take uh, and kind of make a cohesive argument for combining kind of 9-11 truth, conspiracy stuff, you know, fluoride, GMOs, all the stuff that we talk about with a biblical perspective and to show that this stuff has been going on for a very long time. And basically, if the Old Testament prophets were around today, uh, they would not be impressed with the U.S. and calling it, you know, uh, God's blessed country, they would be saying repent or perish or, or something of that, of that nature. And uh, that the Bible is, is very, in very many cases, anti-political power and has kind of anarchist bent to it. That's one of the arguments that I make, make in the book, which is obviously not a, not a common take on, on the Bible, but to try to try to combine the Bible and kind of modern conspiracy stuff and secret societies and all the rest of it. So it wasn't co-written with Chris White, um, who I know you've interviewed before, but it was uh, in large part inspired and encouraged by him. Um, I told him he should write a book and that I would help him with the, you know, the English language and editing parts of it. And he said, well, send me an outline and I'll tell you what I think. And I sent him an outline and he said, Oh, it looks like you know what you're talking about. Go ahead and write the book. <laughs> Excellent so bit of encouragement there. Yeah, that's that's how it came came about. Very so that good. was well. It's a fascinating subject, and and I certainly agree that there's uh, quite a disparity between what the mainstream Christian church in America says about America and its place in the world, and versus what <laughs> I think the Bible would would have to say about that in a number of respects. So I, I'm looking forward to reading that book. Hopefully, we can talk about it in the future. But in the meantime, um, I believe I first encountered you through an inter- interview you did on Media Monarchy several years back with James Evan Pilato about that book. So. I'll point people yeah, to the Media Monarchy archives for that. James uh, James Evan Plato obviously is from from Portland, and and I grew up in Hood River, about sixty miles away from there. So, when I went back home after teaching in Korea, we actually um, went to a couple of the same events and and got to meet. And I was on his shows. It was a very very good time there. So excellent, good stuff. Well, um, people can find the book on Amazon, but is there a less Amazon-y type of way for them to purchase? You know what? There, there used to be, um, but the less Amazon-y way required more uh, work on and expense on my part. So, unfortunately, Amazon is the way to go. Um, if you happen to be an Amazon Prime member, you can check it out from the library absolutely free, and I get money from that. So, it seems like a good a good deal for everyone all the way around. It certainly does, and so um, I would never encourage people to sign up for that, but if you already have it, then why not? If you already have it, yeah, absolutely. All right, excellent. Well, I think we'll leave things there for now. Andrew Hoffman, thank you so much for your time and insights today. Well, thanks, James. This is yours is my my very favorite podcast, and it's an absolute honor to have been a small part of it. Well, thank you.